Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 8, and I'll be reading verses 6 through 7 and 10 through 13. This is the word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better premises, promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, what a privilege it is to be um, your people, to call you our God, to know you, uh, to be part of a covenant that you made with Israel and also with us by extension. We're so grateful to even be able to... um, to exist, to not be annihilated in your presence. And here you call us to know you. And so we want to do that this morning. Amen. All right, please be seated. All right. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the moms here. Even though it is a bit of a Hallmark holiday, I think there's some worth to it, of course. Um, Mothers are some of the least recognized uh, people with, with the continual contributions and giving. A loving mother will often give and give with the hopes that her children will succeed and grow. And the satisfaction of a mother's work doesn't come through like being repaid with thanks or gifts, but it's to simply see happiness and hopefully godliness in her children. A mom's influence goes far beyond comfort and care, and often a mom will be the most influential person in that child's life and their character and for what they'll do and what their accomplishments will be in for the remainder of their life. This has been the case for many great Christians leaders who were primarily shaped by their mothers. And uh, Ben's spotlight last week was an example of this when we saw uh, Hudson Taylor's mom's influence in his life. And actually, uh, Tim Challies, he he came up with a series on this. There's 12 different examples that he compiled of, uh, he called it Christian Men and Their Godly Moms. I would encourage you to look it up. It's well-known people spanning different centuries. Uh, My wife and I have both been blessed with loving and faithful moms. I'd say Ruth's mom has had perhaps the greatest influence in our family dynamic in terms of how we raise our kids and pointing us to godly resources. And for my mom, she's the primary reason for who I am today. I would say there was not a day that went by where I was not confident that I was loved and accepted. And that's why I'm an open book. I was raised an open book because I was always loved. And maybe you were blessed with a great mom as well. And to those who were, the author of Hebrews is here to tell you this morning that Jesus is better than your mom. (laughs) Now, 
if you've been tracking with our sermon series, you know that Hebrews makes these continual comparisons between Jesus and something else, and Jesus is always better. So Jesus is higher than the angels. His teaching is more authoritative than the law. He's a perfect brother. He's better than Moses. He's better than any priest. And so with our book's theme, it would be fitting to assert that Jesus is better than your mom. And I'm not saying this just because Jesus is perfect and powerful and your mom's only human. I'm actually saying that you can have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with Jesus than you can with your mom. For some, this may not be saying much, depending on your connection with your mom here, but I do suspect there's some who would find it hard to believe, and maybe you intellectually acknowledge Jesus, but it's hard to fathom having a healthier relationship with Jesus than any other relationship here on earth, let alone your mom. Maybe the concept of a close relationship with Jesus seems a little bit foreign to you. And if so, I hope that this passage shows you that it was God's design all along for relationship. Now, if it wasn't obvious before, when our theme was first announced, it should be very clear why uh, Jesus is better throughout this book. If you recall, the challenge at hand here is the audience is being persecuted. The temptations that turn back to Judaism. So the author is systematically going through in his letter here, showing them why Jesus is better and why there's no other option. Our passage in Hebrews 8 is another proof in this ongoing argument, and it shows that Jesus is the high priest of the better covenant. And during the last two weeks, Rick led us through uh, chapter 7, talking about Jesus' superiority to the Old Testament priests and their ministry. And this is rooted in his appointment, his association with Melchizedek, and his effective and permanent ministry. Now, our chapter opens with the author feeling the need to clarify the main point for his readers. Uh, And because the author felt it was necessary to pause, bring it back to the big picture, I see this as an indication that we should do the same. So the author writes in verse 1, Now the point in what we are saying is this. He does not then provide like a concise summary. Instead, he's, he tells them the outcome of what he's been saying all along. It's almost like he's saying, look, here's what I'm getting at. And admittedly, I'm grateful he told us what he's getting at. Because after a whole chapter with Melchizedek, you feel like it's easy to lose the direction in the theological weeds. But Melchizedek was not a rabbit trail. It's all part of his overarching argument. So the author, he begins his letter with macroscopic comparisons. We have Jesus and angels, Jesus and humans, Jesus and Moses. But then he gets into the microscopic with the ancestral requirements for the priesthood. But he's still advancing his argument. So it's easy to lose hold of, I think, this intellectual uh, momentum that the book's presenting as he goes between like these really key, pithy theological truths and then the supporting details beneath them. So I want to paint an analogy that's hopefully helpful to you as it was to me. So I want you to think of Hebrews like snorkeling. And this is point one in your outline. So picture yourself, if you've ever been snorkeling, you're 10 to 12 feet above this intricate reef below you. And it's just teeming with life. And from up at the surface, you've got this beautiful view. You can see the whole scenery But if you want the full experience of snorkeling, you're going to dive down. You're going to look into the pockets underneath the coral, look for starfish, urchins, eels, whatever there might be. And there's going to be all these shells on the bottom, and you're taking in all the detail. But at some point, you have to come back to the surface for air. And I think in the same way, the author of Hebrews is like a snorkeler. He gives these dense and bold statements about Jesus. They're very brief, but they're rich. And they tell you about who he is, what he's like. 
but then he's going to dive down for an up-close view on some detailed aspect about Jesus, and he's going to unpack something about Jesus' ministry and compare it to the Old Testament or something with Judaism. And when he draws out these differences and contrasts, he's going to make his point and then bring it back to the surface, and you get the whole picture again after he's already focused in on that detail. So I think Hebrews is it's just rich with theology, and it often exposits doctrines that we don't see anywhere else in the rest of the New Testament. But after you swim through kind of these deeper waters for a time, you have to return to the central theme of the letter and place that in the context of the overall message. So hopefully that's a helpful analogy because we're going to build on it now in the slides above. All right, good. Um, so we're going to swim through Hebrews looking at the central building theme. This is going to be a really high picture look. It's, it's going to fail for sure in terms of an adequate summary, but it's going to capture the intellectual momentum that brings us into chapter 8. So starting at the beginning, the author opens his letter with a two-sentence summary, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, about who Jesus is. And honestly, the rest of the book is really unpacking that statement. In his first supporting excursus, it addresses how Jesus is superior to the angels. And so his teaching is superior to their teaching, which was traditionally held to be the law. So if Jesus' teaching is more authoritative than the law, then you better listen to it. Don't depart from it. Then the author explains why Jesus became a human. If he's higher than the angels, why become human? Well, it's so that he could be the founder of salvation. And related to him being human, he's better than any human, any human leader, including Moses. And then talking about Moses, Moses wasn't able to bring the Israelites through the promised rest. The unbelieving Israelites did not attain rest because of their unbelief. And his audience, Hebrews' audience, is also at risk of unbelief. But with belief, they can still find rest in Jesus. And so he brings it back to the main point, that belief, a rest, can be found in Jesus because Jesus is our source of rest, our great high priest. And then he delves into these other aspects of his appointment and how Jesus has a superior appointment. And because they could trust this appointment, they can trust his promises. And then the author talks about the security of these promises. And that's rooted in his role as high priest. And concerning the legitimacy of the role, that's where the author dives one more layer deeper still. And this is rooted in his association with Melchizedek and not with Levi. And I think that's where most modern readers wonder if, where they took a wrong turn. Like, how, how did we end up where we are now? And that's why he's bringing it back right now. Because Jesus is associated with Melchizedek. That makes him greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron, greater than Levi, and greater than any Old Testament priest. And now he comes back to the surface in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Now, this is the point in what we're saying. Again, back to our surface. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's making the point that Jesus is a permanent and perfect high priest in heaven. He can save being our finding, founding pioneer. He can give you rest as he's our source of rest. He gives security because he's permanent and perfect. And as we'll see in our passage today, Jesus is the real deal. He didn't serve in an earthly copy. He served in the heavenly reality. And he's not a priest of an old, ineffective covenant, but of the new and the better covenant. And I think that helps us see where, how we got to where we are today, and then also where we're going next. Because we just talked, he's talking about the new covenant. Now he's going to dive back into the old covenant by way of contrast, examining the old way, the earthly way, 
and then in particular with an emphasis on sacrifices. And then he'll pivot on sacrifice from Jesus as priest to Jesus as sacrifice. So hopefully with this larger overarching pattern, you can see how Hebrews isn't just a collection of theological doctrines. It's a persuasive letter to a well-educated audience. And so the details, though they're complex at times and how they all fit together, the message is actually very, very simple. Jesus is better. Don't forsake him because you don't have another option. So as we look at the specifics to our passage, I want you to see while our passage is indeed about the new covenant, it's presented as another proof of Jesus being a superior high priest. So now that we're done with the first half of verse 1, we can transition into point 2 in your outline. The reigning MVP, or the most valuable priest. For us to truly appreciate why Jesus is the MVP, we must first understand our need for the priest. And priests aren't just merely limited to Judaism. Actually, many religions have priests of some sort. Maybe they don't call it that title. But although they may have different individual practices, rituals, and the offerings, all those vary, they share a common core purpose, which is what Nate was explaining to enable man to connect with God, to have access. Without a priest, humanity cannot access God, and that's actually still true in Christianity. Humanity sinned against God and broke fellowship with him. And the author of Hebrews was confident that his audience understood this well. They're well-versed in the effects of sin and the need for, um, the need for offerings and priests. He, doesn't, he assumes his background doesn't have to make that case. That's a lot different than when Paul writes the letter to the Romans, for example. He has to build that basis because he's reaching pagans who don't have that background. So he starts off by saying, there's none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or the wages of sin is death. He's having to bring them into the sense of, we've sinned, we've done something wrong. But Hebrews jump straight in and just assumes they know all this. That they're familiar with the far-reaching impacts of sin and the need for priests and the need for sacrifices. That's a given. And when it comes to Christianity, you'll notice that neither the author of Hebrews nor any other Old Testament or New Testament author nor Jesus himself ever makes an argument that you don't need a priest anymore. It's not that Jesus changed the rules and now we can approach God without priests. Rather, it's that Jesus took on that role as priest. The only reason each of us here has access to God without some human priest is that we have a heavenly priest that grants us access to God. So last week, Rick gave us a helpful overview of the tabernacle with its outer courts, inner courts, the holy place, and then inside the most holy place. And that's really just a physical reminder of that separation between God and man. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place, and only once a year, and at risk of his own life. It was to be made plain that God was inaccessible by human effort. Remain that way for 1,500 years but 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, everything changed. He ascended into heaven as our heavenly high priest. And at that point, Jesus opened the way to God. It's why we see Jesus refer to himself in John 10 as the door. And he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's still true today. People may say, I have a special relationship with God. Well, they don't. There is no relationship with God aside from going through Jesus Christ. And with Jesus permanently in ministry, there's no need for any other mediator. No other priests are needed at this point. So that's the most obvious reason why Jesus is the MVP. 
He's permanent, perfect, and the only one needed. But let's look at a few more verses, in, or a few more reasons in verses 1 through 2 again. It says, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So, first off, Jesus is seated, not standing. Priests were always standing because they were always offering. They were at work. Jesus is is sitting because he's done. He's finished. There's nothing left to do. No more sacrifices are coming from him or from us. Second, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a place of authority, of favor, and honor. He's in direct communion with God on a regular basis. Compare that to the Old Testament priests who couldn't even enter the holy place. Even with all their ceremonial cleansings. Third, let's be reminded, Jesus is a minister. Now today, sometimes that term minister is used more like a title of honor, like prime minister. But as its origin and use here, it's one who ministers. It means someone who serves on behalf of the community. And I think we may take this for granted, but let's not forget how remarkable and unusual it is that Jesus here, the, the divine creator of the universe, should be a public servant. I think that says a lot about his character. And lastly, Jesus is in the Lord's true tabernacle. He's the only priest to have ministered in the authentic tabernacle. All of the earthly priests were just working in a copy and a shadow. So if we continue reading into verse 3, we can add to this list of why he's MVP that Jesus' offering is much better. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The author assumes that it's obvious what this is. But in just a few verses earlier, in verse 27 of chapter 7, he says very clearly of Jesus, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So we know Jesus' death on the cross wasn't some unexpected act of evil that God then repurposed. It was Jesus offering himself as his role as high priest. And that becomes a central focus in chapter 10. So in summary, if there were any lingering questions after reading chapter 7, his audience would now conclude very clearly that Jesus is the better high priest. So having established that, the author leads into the next logical conclusion, which is if Jesus is the MVP, then his ministry and his covenant are better. And that's point three in your outline. The rising sun and vanishing shadows. If you have Jesus forever, you don't need anything else. When Jesus comes onto the scene, the scene has to change. You don't need the copy when you have the original with you. So in verses four through five, the author explains that the law and the tabernacle are copies and shadows of what Jesus accomplished in heaven. Then in verses six through seven, he directs the argument toward how Christ's current ministry and the former Levitical ministry, they can't coexist. And in 8 through 12, he quotes Jeremiah, who prophesied of a new and better covenant. And then in verse 13, he concludes that if the better covenant is now here, then the former covenant is no longer needed, and it's ready to vanish. So let's read the first part of these verses now, just in verses 4 through 7. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So in terms of priesthood, Jesus is the real deal. There's no need for mere mortals to just offer inadequate sacrifices in a replica anymore. The complete sacrifice has already been made in the true tabernacle. Jesus' purpose here was to shed light on the ultimate reality. He would not have served in a copy or a shadow having knowledge of this true tabernacle. So if you step back to the big picture, the author continues to repeatedly make the same point, just from different angles here. You can't turn back to Judaism. It wasn't even real. It was a copy. It was a shadow. It had a purpose, but now that the new covenant is here, the old is now obsolete and ready to vanish away. And that that statement may have been much more true than what the author may have actually realized, because it was less than five years after writing this is when the temple was destroyed. And no temple means no altar, no priest, and no sacrifices. So within five years, it truly had finished and truly had vanished. The old vanished because it was never effective in bringing people to God. And God found fault with the former covenant and people, not with the law, but with the way of approaching God and the way of enforcing, <clears throat> enforcing the law. People just couldn't stay faithful to it. So he announced a new covenant, one where God would be faithful and not the people. So when it comes to compliance with the covenant, the Israelites, they were really set up for failure. The Mosaic law was a conditional covenant. You know, if you do this, I'll do this. If you obey, you'll have blessings and provision. If you disobey, you'll have cursings or curses and punishment. And so the future outcome was in the hands of the people, which is a scary thought. So here is what God remarked of the people in the covenant in verses 8 and 9. He says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and, not, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. The Israelites could not keep the whole law. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know we couldn't have either. So then, what was the purpose of the law if it was an unattainable standard? Paul describes the law as a guardian and a tutor. It was to show our moral failures and our need for a savior. It was a constant, ever-present reminder of humanity's sinful condition and our reliance and need for God's forgiveness. The Old Covenant, the law, and the Mosaic system, they were never meant to save. It was meant to a need, pointing to a need for a Savior. And the Old Testament saints, they weren't saved by any of these sacrifices. They were saved by faith, which is the focus of chapter 11 later. But it was faith in a future Savior, a future covenant, nothing from the Mosaic covenant. So it was planned all along that the Old Covenant would be inadequate, incomplete. But it's not like it was Plan A later to be replaced by Plan B. It's more like the Old was Plan A Part 1, and the New is Plan A Part 2. They tie together. So you'll note that in describing the New Covenant, verse 10 still mentions his laws. These are the same moral laws or principles that are reflected in the Mosaic Law. It's not like God's loosening his standards because he's realizing people can't keep up to him. He's keeping his standards the same, but he's changing how they're enacted. The Old Covenant had external reminders of these laws. Frontlets that you put on your forehead or bracelets. 
you tap into your doorpost, everything was an external reminder. But under this new covenant, these laws are internalized, and they're put there by God himself. That strength comes from God, not from the people. So while the old covenant heavily emphasized rituals and compliance, look at how the new covenant places emphasis on God's central role. I'm going to just read from verses 10 through 12 quickly. I'll skim parts of it. For this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my laws into their minds. I will be their God, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will, not, I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant's all about what God will do. It's an unconditional covenant because it depends on God's faithfulness, not on the righteousness or rituals of his people. And that's why this new covenant truly brought about an end of religion. This covenant is about what God has promised to do to reach his people, not about what people have to do to be in communion with him. So consider any religion. At its core, it's really man's effort to reach God. It's based on performance or accomplishments, rituals, sacrifices, offerings, and the likes. But it's all man-centered. The old covenant was rooted in ritual and do's and don'ts and degrees of separation between God and man. But its effects, they were shallow and temporary. They'd make you ceremonially clean for a time being. But no Old Testament saint was ever cleansed from their sin. Not until Jesus' death and resurrection would they be made holy. The religion was insufficient to make them righteous. And therefore, God brought about a new covenant and the end of religion. So think about how Christianity and Jesus really reversed this idea of religion. Uh, Dave Anderson actually preached on this passage in 2008, and he gave an illustration that I thought was helpful and modified some. I want you to imagine a priest, maybe a, a priest in Eastern Asia who is learning of Christianity for the very first time, trying to understand this. Maybe the interaction would go something like this. Where is your temple? Well, actually, Jesus is our temple. Well, where do you offer sacrifices? Well, we don't. Jesus was our sacrifice. Who's your priest then? Jesus is our priest. How do you approach God if, if he's your priest? Well, Jesus came and approached us. Well, don't you have to do something? No, we just need to believe that Jesus took care of it all. I mean, that's a radically different message than almost any other religion would tell you. The new covenant is the end of religion because it's the end of man-centered actions. In Jeremiah 31, and that's what's quoted here, God took all the action items. And in Jesus, he fulfilled all of them. Therefore, Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. And that brings us to our fourth and last point in your outline. With our remaining time, we're going to focus on the new covenant, what it says about God and what it means for us. It's a beautiful passage of hope. It's a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It's actually the longest quotation in the New Testament. But the reason the author is including it here is another piece of evidence for how Jesus is the enactor of a better covenant. So let's jump into the heart of the new covenant, reading verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I mean, this is a beautiful message of hope. And the sad thing is that this message was and still is for the house of Israel. 
who's largely missed the covenant, despite a 600-year heads up. So sometimes when we throw around these words, like covenant, you know, biblical terms enough, we may become overly familiar with them and lose the original meaning behind them. When we think of old covenant and new covenant, maybe that casually seems like the old practice and the new practice, or the former way to God and the new way to God. And while those are true statements, I think they fall short of describing what a covenant truly is. A covenant is a binding legal agreement between two or more parties. So the old covenant and new covenant, they're contracts between God and Israel. So now, thinking of the new covenant as a heavenly contract between yourself and God, think about some of the earthly contracts that you've signed. Maybe it's when you bought your home or you signed up for a cell phone provider or your gym membership or a contractor with your house. Pretty much any time you sign a contract or a waiver, we all know why these forms exist. They're not here to inform you of all the things that you need to know. It's really to protect whoever wrote the contract so that you don't sue them when something goes wrong. And if you've ever worked with a client trying to develop a new contract, it's back and forth between your lawyers and theirs, and everyone's vying for their own best interest, right? So compare that to this new covenant. Think of this as a contract that God crafted for membership in his family. What does that mean for you? What are the risks? Well, verse 12 tells us, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's incredible. That's like a hold harmless clause for the signing party in the contract. It says you're completely absolved from your sins. It says you will not be held liable in any way for injuries or damage incurred. And that they can't, and they won't be held against you. I mean, that language is actually written into the covenant. It's written in your contract. So why would God do this? Why would God be so generous and merciful? Why forgive and forget? Why put these laws in us internally? Well, he tells us in verses 10 and 11. He will do this so that he will be their God and they will be his people. He will do this so that they shall all know him from the least of them to the greatest. Well, he does this because we've been created for relationship. That was the original design, and it's still the ultimate destination. God created humans to have a deep and meaningful relationship with us. Not so that we'd offer gifts and sacrifices, but so that we would know him. The end goal of the new covenant is not just one that's effective for salvation, but it's one that's effective for reconciliation and for relationship. God did not give his son his cosmic charity from a distance, but for redemption into his family. It's like the difference between child sponsorship and personal adoption. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with Compassion International or Bridge of Hope through GFA, but it's a, it's a great program if you're not. It's, it's for child sponsorship and poverty, providing ways for um, education, basic needs, growing in the faith. I'd ask for a show of hands, but then you'd all lose your heavenly reward. Just kidding. Um, but I, I sponsored my first child when I was 17, and for the first couple years, I used to you know, occasionally write letters and then taper it off got married, and Ruth started writing the letters, tapered off. And then my oldest, Aspen, when she was old enough to start writing, we'd pay her a dollar per letter. And that eventually tapered off. And please don't judge me, but I eventually accepted that our family will just never write these letters. We'll never build that relationship. And so I settled to be happy to help from a distance, to provide opportunities without being personally involved. I'd get emails with the title of, like, Irene would like to visit you, and mm, delete. And I felt bad about it. 
Struggled feeling guilty at that detachment, but I knew, realistically, I didn't have time for that kind of a relationship. But I figured a distant sponsor is better than no sponsor at all, right? Now, I share this not to lower your opinion of me, but as a contrast to what God is not. Some cultural Christians see God very much in that light. As some distant sponsor who's going to send you to heaven, he sent you a backpack full of all the stuff you need for salvation, but otherwise you're pretty much on your own. Honestly, some professing Christians would prefer God to be like that. Just save me and let me be. And I'm here to tell you that that's not even an option. Standalone salvation does not exist. You're either an enemy of God condemned to hell, or you're a precious, blood-bought child of God whom he's given his very spirit, one that he's entered into covenant with, one who he's pursuing for a relationship and there's no in-between. And yet, so many professing Christians haven't read their Bible in months, or ever, and pray only when in distress. That's not relationship. Jesus gave the perfect and permanent offering of his sinless life not to just secure sinners out of sympathy, but to redeem rebels for restored relationship. Jesus is not in the business of bailing people out of jail. He's redeeming rebels to integrate them into his father's family. So God established this covenant at the expense of his son so that all would know him, from the least to the greatest. I mean, that's true love. When you think about what he's pursuing here, Christian, wouldn't you agree that's an amazing sacrifice? Christian, wouldn't you, or do you believe, that God truly did this for you to know him? Then, Christian, have you made the time and effort to truly know him? I hope many can say yes to all three questions, but I suspect that more than a few had to say no to the last question. And this isn't meant to be a guilt trip in trying to have people do more. Even the best among us could do more. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm asking you to reflect on is if you're even trying. And I don't think that applies to everyone, but I think there's some that it might. If you're not satisfied with where you are and you see room for improvement, don't get discouraged. At least you're assessing this. What I'm wondering is, are there some here who it, where it's not even on your radar? If you would describe yourself as falling somewhere between the spectrum of the least and the greatest, well, then God wants to know you. The word for know is the same word that husband is used for a husband knowing his wife. It's not just knowledge about him. It's experientially and personally knowing God. So a nominal's Christian knowledge or an unbeliever's might be like my knowledge of Yosemite National Park. I'm aware of Yosemite, its reputation, I've seen pictures, I'd love to go there one day. I know very little of it, I've experienced none of it. I certainly like the idea of Yosemite, and maybe I'll go there someday, but I haven't made it a priority. I think it's sad, but true, how many nominal cultural Christians could say the same. I like the idea of God, but I haven't made it a priority to know him. Now contrast that to Zion National Park. I have gotten to know Zion, but I don't fully know it. There are different levels. We've driven through it. We've camped in it. We've hiked dozens of miles. I even know that you shouldn't enter the Narrows if the flow's over 120 CFS. But it's one of those things where there are hundreds of miles, dozens of trails that we've never done and probably never will do. Knowing God is like knowing Zion National Park. You can take the shuttle bus or drive through it and experience it at that surface level. And that's probably what 90% of people do. It's like sporadic church attendance and reading some of the New Testament. Or 
You can hike all the highly rated trails. You can get easy access to killer views, get the big picture of the park. That's like reading through the Bible in a year. And you get a good sense of the main themes and storyline of God's redemptive history. You can find trails that aren't on maps. And that's like personal Bible study and prayer, where you have to work hard at it. You begin to understand the intricacies of God, how unfathomable he is. You can explore the technical canyons requiring gear and experience. This is like maybe reading commentaries, being involved in, uh, in ministry. But here's my point. The more that you get to know, or the more time you spend in Zion, the more you realize how vast it is and how inaccessible some places are and how you literally can't see all of it. And the more you know God, you realize how rich and how deep he is. So how do you plan on going deeper with God? For Zion, you can Google it or guide it, but what about with God? How do you do that in your relationship? Now, first off, I think it may be hugely helpful for some just to simply view it as a relationship, just like you would any other relationship. You don't just naturally grow closer to friends or your spouse just by letting time expire. You have to be intentional. It takes time. It takes effort, intentionality, so pursue him. But as for specifics, there's been a few spotlights on this recently, so I'm not going to repeat all of it. But Ben did share at the beginning of the year the importance of a Bible plan. And it's not so much which Bible plan you choose or the content of it, but the consistency of it and being involved in it. And then later, Lars shared the importance of devotional commentaries, how you can go deeper at the head and heart level. And the focus there is a lot more on depth than it is on breadth. So if a Bible plan in a year was kind of like you know, flying over in an airplane and you get a good example of what the different changing landscapes look like, then a devotional commentary might be like a walk in the woods in one part of that landscape. And then last week, Ben shared, uh, I thought was very practical advice on how to improve your prayer life and just the habit of prayer. He listed, uh, start with five minutes a day, set aside a specific time, choose a specific place, and use a list or a journal. I mean, these are simple things, but if if I were to consistently do these four things that Ben mentioned, I would have a closer intimacy with God than I do now. And that's something I want to prioritize in my life. And I think for many of us, that's what it largely comes down to. Priorities and choices, does it not? I think for many of us, and I, I group myself in this category, we do genuinely want to know God better. We want a deeper experience with God in his leading and the sense of his presence in daily life, yet we don't want to work hard at it. We give in to tiredness and distractions, and we take what appears to be the easier path in the moment. And if you don't create or plan these habits, then you're subject to the weakness of the moment. You always think, ah, I'll do that in 10 minutes, or I'll do that later today. But when, honestly, when do you ever actually have 10 truly free minutes where you don't have something else competing for it? Our free time comes with more possibilities than we can actually fill our time with. So it's always a trade-off. Example, choices tonight, Bible and prayer, or Netflix, or a book, or working out, or catching up on chores, or replying to emails, or going to bed early. So if you don't plan for that, you'll be making a decision in the moment from those eight options. So which will you choose? So perhaps some of us here are overcommitted, overworked, overscheduled. We've said yes to so many things, good and neutral, that we have no buffer. And unless you block out time, there really will be no time to connect with God. So I think we all know that reading and prayer are important, but we also know from experience they're not urgent. They don't have a deadline. 
No one's really checking in on us. So it comes down to self-discipline. And I think it sets setting habits, but also refraining from what will distract. So perhaps there are some here, though, whose issue is not of time, habits, or priorities, but of desire. Maybe you hear these things and you can't relate because you're not interested in a close relationship with God. Or maybe it sounds boring or limiting. Or maybe just kind of the concept of a relationship with God way up in heaven seems foreign. Then ask God in prayer to change your heart. If you want this desire, ask him to give you this desire, to give you a new heart, to perform the new covenant by writing these laws in your heart. And God would gladly answer such a prayer. And then so pray and start reading. You won't be drawn to him if you're not hearing from him. So knowing God, although it's helpful to have processes, it can't be sustained simply by self-discipline. Progress can happen through self-discipline, but it must be fueled by desire. And desiring God is a work of God. Listen to what Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says. This is also like a foreshadowing of the new covenant. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Sometimes we don't love God on our own strength, but it's because God has put that love of himself inside of us. Looking back at the covenant language, it is God who initiates and God who completes the work. And we need to ask God to invite him to continue to change and renew our hearts. And it's the same with witnessing and for evangelism, with trying to reach the lost. We may do our best to present Jesus as holy and true, as majestic, as compassionate. We share our personal testimony. We give books. We read from scripture. We pray for them. And we wonder, how would anyone not want Jesus? And yet people reject him all the time. It takes an inner work of God on the heart. Only God can do this. That's in his hands and his timing. Now, before we close, I want to speak to those who may feel like I felt when I was 16. I hope this applies to very few and maybe none, but I suspect in a church our size it does apply. Maybe you're comfortable with only intellectually acknowledging God. Why don't you give him credit for the sovereignty points, but you're fine without this intimacy You think it's fine and good for others to want that, but you don't want it yourself. You say, my plan is to get on board with God so I can get on into heaven. And then if I miss out on some of the relational piece, that's not a big deal. So let me clarify then what I mean by when I say God wants to know you. It's not as though God is hoping that you will know him. It's that God expects that you will know him if you are his. Knowing him is actually a reflection that you are truly his child. Listen to what Jesus says to those who thought they were good with God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus didn't care about all the actions and motions they went through. He didn't care that they called him Lord. He didn't know them. They weren't part of his family. I know that seems like a scare tactic, maybe, and it kind of is, minus the tactic part. It's not a ploy, it's reality. And it is a fearful reality to meet God after having lived a life independent of him while recognizing that he's real. And that's the track I was on for a while. But along with this stick, there's also a carrot. 
knowing that God will be the most meaningful part of your life because you were designed for this. God paid the infinite price for you to have the privilege of knowing him. So will you take that with him? Please stand as we close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you. We look at these verses about uh, promises of mercy and forgiveness and a relationship. And we know that any of the fault is on our part, but that you are always waiting with arms wide open. So help us to walk into your arms more often, to trust you, um, to see our need for you, and to make uh, changes in our life that will have an eternal impact. In your name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Oh, set us free Cause we could never